the thankfulness that's ours to come together on this Sunday morning just reminds us of how good God has been to each of us, to bless us with life, to bless us with the degree of health we do have, that we can come together today and offer our heartfelt praise and adoration to the God that made us and the God whom we hope to be with for all eternity. The lesson this morning, as you can tell, will relate to the coming of the Lord. And you may have noted a moment ago in what Mike read to us that that explicit phrase occurs as a part of what you see in verse 15. So we'll cast a bit of a spotlight this morning on the nature of that passage and challenge ourselves to appreciate the second coming of our Master. This opening slide will be one that presents an introduction. And it does so in the following way. None of us need reminding that the second coming of Christ is frequently a matter of discussion. There are many, in fact, who would even put it as a point of controversy because the religious world is rather divided on what will happen, when it will happen, the explicit nature of what will happen. But yet the Bible is all that we have to go on, of course. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, May I suggest to you that the last verse that Mike read a moment ago, verse 18, still reads like this, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. There is a sense in which the message of the Lord's second coming can be there as a topic that can encourage your heart and mind when we are almost in despair. When we reach a point in life when there are challenges and difficulties and it seems as though the matters are engulfing upon us with the onslaughts of the devil. It's in a matter like that that Paul encouraged the Thessalonians when you start to feel like that. Be comforted with the message we're about to study today. I hope that each of us then with somewhat almost a degree of excitement can contemplate the nature of the marvel of this event the Bible does and reveal to us some of the things that will take place, and we're going to try to look at them in some detail this morning. So let's close that slide. And for the first part of the lesson, let's first of all cement in our thinking the appreciation of the certainty of this event. This in part will be motivated by a phrase or at least a set of verses, and you may wish to turn there with me in Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, it reads as follows. This second epistle, this is beginning in verse 1, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You can notice what was being asserted. Peter, in fact, tried to remind those of his day, and certainly you and I as well, there are going to be scoffers. They are going to have the following mentality, the following approach. Look, the Lord was here once, but He has long since gone back and He hasn't returned. It's been decades. It's been years. And at least from your perspective and mine today, it has now been approximately 2,000 years since He left. 
And this world from one year to the next seemingly marches right on forward. Whether you and I are here or whether we pass on, it seems to continue. The specific question is, verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? Are you sure He's coming back? Are you sure? The next question then reads this, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. This world has certainly marched onward and forward, and Jesus hasn't come back. Now, there were those who were scoffers in that day, and there are still scoffers. People who directly will look at you and me in the face and say, there is no second coming of Jesus. He has long since left this world behind, they would say, and left it to its own devices. He isn't coming back. If He were, He'd come by now, they would be quick to say. After all, look at the messes that have gone on. World wars, multiplied millions of people have died. Why didn't He come yet? Peter said, I'm telling you, there are going to be scoffers. And in the year 2020, the one you and I are now in, there are still those who often will use the appreciations of science to offer in their mind some motivation. Look, He isn't coming. On this slide, I would ask you to note this. One of the key doctrines of all the New Testament, may I say again, one of the key doctrines of all the New Testament is the second coming of Christ. He is coming back. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, at that point, the Master had been crucified and He'd even been resurrected. And for a period of weeks, He had taught and instructed and preached to those whom He was able to do that. And then the day came that on that Mount of Olives, He rose into the clouds and He was no longer in their sight. And the twelve apostles were standing gazing up into heaven. I say twelve, there was only eleven, my mistake about that. But as they were gazing up into the heavens... There were angelic messengers who at that point directly told them the same Jesus who you've seen go is going to come in like manner as you saw Him leave. Now when those apostles, of course, appreciated the nature of that promise, the character of that event, you'll notice that not only did Jesus promise Him His own second coming, here were angelic visitors that did the same. Jesus had said, In John 14, on the very night before He was crucified, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. We might as well stop at that point. He said, I will come back. You and I live approximately 20 centuries this side of that event. But it does not in the slightest take anything away from the promise and the certainty of its occurrence. About the middle of that slide, you again can appreciate the mindset of many who are seemingly so quick to say nothing ever changes. Men choose to do what's evil. Countries fight one with another. Immorality seems to be on the ascendancy. He isn't coming back, they would say. And yet Jesus said, I'm coming back. Those angelic messengers said that He's coming back. And there is scarcely a single page of the New Testament 
where there is not at least some reference to the fact He's coming back. At the bottom of that slide, then, might we say this. The text that was read to us earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4 is a passage we're now going to look at in a bit more detail. But it all begins at verse 13 like this. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Our Savior's coming back. In 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. But as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Quite often, there are times when you and I realize that the human family falls short on what we say. We'll give our word with regard to something, and then circumstances arise which were not in our purview, and what we promised, we don't do it. Maybe children are about the first ones to point it out to us. But Daddy, you promised. Whether it's going fishing, whether it's throwing a baseball in the yard, Dad, you promised. But son, I'm so tired. It didn't change the fact you promised. And quite often we try to justify our failures in this regard, but might we never forget that God does not have any such failure. If He promised it, it is an absolute certainty. Thus, with regard to the second coming, the Bible is filled with these references. And so, the next slide is then the following. Paul wrote to that Thessalonian congregation. And he wrote to them and insisted that I don't want you to be ignorant. Might I offer the fact then that today, some of the circumstances in which individuals are the most gullible... It's because they're ignorant. They are willing to fall for almost anything that someone might say regarding the second coming. And after all, the Schofield Bible and others have given this elaborate situation concerning premillennialism, a supposed rapture, a supposed tribulation, a supposed battle of Armageddon, and none of it's true. Not a single word of it, at least in the context they're trying to present it. And yet people have fallen for it because they haven't opened the Word of God. There are no wild guesses about this. Paul again pointed out in verse 13, I don't want you Thessalonians to be ignorant. And so here are some divine instructions which I want to bequeath to you, and certainly by inspiration will be given to all of us as well. Notice near the top of that slide. The particular issue that was troubling the Thessalonians... They were under the mindset that when the Lord comes back, then we, you see, who are alive, are going to be ready to be so blessed. And we're going to be ushered into the eternal kingdom of the Master. But those Thessalonians were concerned, what about my dear father, who was a faithful Christian but's now dead? Or what about my other family members? They've gone on and they won't be alive when the Lord comes back. They were troubled. What's going to happen to those who've passed on at the time the Lord returns? What about those who happen to be alive when He returns? Those are all great questions. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, I would point out this as we make ready to look in some more detail at this. 
just as surely as Jesus died and was resurrected, that's the same certainty with which He's coming back. Now, I say that this way. Would you at least reflect on Acts 17, verses 30 and 31 with me? As Paul stood in that Grecian place and preached with such majesty and might, he said, in regard to the behaviors, in regard to the choices that people make, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Because He has appointed a day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance to all men, and that He raised Him from the dead. Did you note the connection with me? Just as surely as God the Father raised Him, that's the same certainty with which He's coming back, and the same certainty with which He's going to judge the world. Your deeds and mine... The choices of your life and mine will be openly presented, and He's going to make a verdict. He'll make a judgment as He compares the teaching of His Word to what my life has been. Is it going to be found favorable? Will yours be found favorable? For that reason, let's close that slide like this. There were some people, we don't exactly know who it was, but they had written the Thessalonian people a letter. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 2 makes reference to it. In in this letter, it said this, "...that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand." Someone had forged a letter and sent it to the Thessalonian church and said, "...Jesus is about to come back. You better get ready." And Paul directed these first and second Thessalonian letters to them and said, I never said that. I didn't write that letter. We don't know when that day of the Lord's going to happen. It might be this afternoon. It might be a hundred million years from now. None of us have any idea. But what we do know, as we're about to see today, is what the Bible has revealed to us is so beautiful and powerful. And for that reason, let's now look with some care at those verses that follow. The explicit wording that Paul used is this, "...I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him." For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall in no wise present, precede them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. And I chose that to start our discussion. There's coming a moment, and it will be a fantastic moment, when the Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, is going to appear in the clouds. Now again, as we appreciate the Bible's teaching on this point, mankind has not been told the day that's going to be. And it's easy to understand why. Everybody, it would seem, with the large consideration of the majority, would live in the most filthy, vile, ungodly ways. And if they knew the day, they'd try to straighten things up, either late the previous day or early that morning. God doesn't want people living that way. He wants us to always be ready 
to live wholesomely, holy, godly lives dedicated and committed to Him, not a child of the devil up to the last minute. And yet Paul says, the Lord Himself. Would you notice the pronoun? Jesus isn't just going to send an angel. He isn't even going to send the archangel. It says, the Lord Himself is coming. What an event that's going to be. As you can well tell, He's going to descend from heaven. That's where He is now. Remember that He passed through the clouds to the Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And when He ascended through those clouds back to the right hand of the Father, He is there reigning over His kingdom in absolute supremacy. But at the command of the Father, He is at some point going to leave that place and come back to the clouds. When He does, look at some of the other features on this slide. Could I point out, borrowing some of the language of Revelation 1, there, as John the Revelator pointed it out, every eye will see Him. Currently, the population of earth, approximately 8 billion. Every, if, he, if He were to come this afternoon, every eye will know He's here. Every person. Nobody is going to be exempt. Nobody will be hidden. Even if you're asleep, you will be instantly awakened and realize the greatness of the moment that's taking place. Every eye will see Him. Those who have anxiously awaited His coming, like you and me. Those who have chosen to live in the most despicable ways, knowing His commandments, but have chosen to rebel against them, they're going to know it too. And it'll be the saddest moment of their existence, knowing they can't do a thing more about it. Judgment's now about to happen, and there's nothing more to be said. But the point is, every eye is going to see Him. You know, sometimes we're under the impression that the authority figures in this world, we can bypass their authority. Well, they can say what they want to, but I don't have to do it. It won't be like that when the Lord returns in the clouds. Did you notice what else is in this verse? The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. There have been those who've said that's the noisiest verse in the whole Bible. They've got a good point. And yet there are those who on many occasions have insisted there's a secretive rapture going to happen. That's nonsense. Three things here are noted. First of all, when the Lord returns, there's going to be a shout accompanying this. That'll in part be a helpful matter so that everybody will know what's occurring. But not only that the voice of the archangel. I said the Lord Himself was coming, and He is, but He will be accompanied by a host of angels. In particular, the archangel is mentioned, and you'll notice it's the voice of the archangel. And finally, the trump of God. Quite often in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, when that trump was blown, it signaled a great event. Maybe it called the children of Israel together to wartime. Or maybe it was a signal representative of a particular choice and discussion that Moses needed to have with them. At this point, it's the trump of God. And when that trump blows, you and I can imagine the marvel of the event. We don't know what the human population will be by that time. But every eye is going to see Him. Every individual is going to be aware of what's occurring. May I quickly say, 
though we mentioned it earlier, the New Testament will be quick to remind us there are no signs of that event. It's not as if one will be able to portend the signs. There are those who borrow Matthew 24 and say, earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, these are all going to be signs, but it isn't so. Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem there, and those were the signs of that event. But in Matthew 24, 36, He said, But of that day and that hour there will be no signs. And you and I then appreciate we must always be ready. It's not something I can hope to get ready at the last minute. That readiness, the understanding attached to that leads me to do this. Paul commented on it here, and he also spoke in 1 Corinthians about it. There will be people alive when Jesus comes back. Might you and I take some heart to that. There are those scientific naysayers in our day who say nuclear war is going to destroy everything and the human family will in fact cease to exist. That isn't so. Paul said there are going to be people alive when Jesus comes back. We don't know when that's going to be, admittedly. But the human family is going to persist. It's going to continue. Let's read it again in verse 16. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The language that Paul used, very strong. Verse 17, we which are alive and remain. Even Paul didn't know when the Lord was coming back. You and I, all these centuries later, we still can say, if we happen to be alive and remain until He's coming, we too will appreciate the grandeur, verse 17. Let's close that slide then like this. When the Master returns, we know the affairs of time are going to close. This earth and everything on it will be burned up. The materialistic features of this earth will be no more. Peter would say in 2 Peter 3 verse 10, The day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This earth is going to be consumed in the greatest fire that has ever been, this side of hell. And as it's consumed, nothing material is going to remain. But what we know is, as Paul revealed to us here, the dead in Christ will have risen. The graves will be emptied. Your loved ones and mine whose bodies have been placed in the cemeteries, they will have been emptied by then. But notice what's at the bottom of that slide. We know flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul reminded us of that in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we aren't suited for eternity with this kind of a body. We need a different one. One that will be immortal, meaning it'll never die. One that'll be suited for the nature and the character of that world beyond this one. And so Paul was quick to identify in that same chapter, we're going to be given a new body. So the one that comes forward from the grave will be given one that'll have a different character than that. All appearances would indicate it may well look a lot like it, but it'll have a whole different character than it. It won't be flesh and blood. It won't be bones and marrow and muscle. 
No wonder then the thing which quickly follows, that general resurrection will have occurred. All the graves will be emptied. Every cemetery will now be empty. All those spirits that have gone on to dwell in the Hadean realm, they'll be rushed back and infused in these bodies. That means Hades will be empty too. All those spirits who've gone to dwell in the realms beyond this one, those spirits will come back and inhabit these bodies that are prepared for them, and so Hades will be empty. Both Paradise and Tartarus. At this point, as you can see at the top of that slide, the general resurrection, the Master spoke about that. In John 5, 28 and 29, He said, Marvel not at this. The hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Only two possibilities for that resurrection. Those that have done good, those that have followed the teaching of God and have served Him to the best of their capacity, they're going to know the resurrection unto life. They'll come forth to never die again. But to those who in fact have rebelled against God and those who have chosen to live foolishly, and chosen to live apart from the teaching He's given, they'll be resurrected as well, but it's a resurrection to damnation. They'll die for all eternity. The second death is theirs. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. It's a frightening thing to consider, isn't it? To die moment after moment for all eternity. In the anguish and in the difficulties attached to hell. But you'll notice on the slide... Those that happen to be alive when the Master returns, they'll be changed instantly. There won't be any opportunity to obey the gospel if you haven't done it. The language of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, as I understand the original text, it identifies a period of time so brief, it's even far shorter than the blinking of an eye. That's that phrase, twinkling of an eye. And that's how quickly it's going to happen. When the Master appears in the clouds, all of those on earth will be changed instantly. As the particulars of that are developed, we've already learned then now's the time for the judgment. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. After coming forth, every single individual will now appear before the judgment bar of the Son of God. After all, as the one who tabernacled in the flesh, John 1.14 as the one who paid the price at the cross for us, He's the one that will serve as our judge. He's the one that can identify with our lot here upon earth. He can say, I was there. I know the temptations you faced. And I also know the choices you made. I know thy works. He told each one of the seven churches of Asia. No wonder in that regard. Paul now comes to this statement in verse 17 of our text. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So let's pause and say the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Those graves, you see, the faithful dead, those are going to come forth and they're going to rise first to meet Jesus in the air. Then all of us who are faithful and still alive will be changed instantly that we too will rise to meet them. Can you imagine the reunion that's going to be? 
all the faithful dead who've passed on, and all the faithful living saints who've just instantly been changed, to rise to be with our Master whom we love and whom we adore, and whom we look forward to being with for all eternity. The coming of the Lord then concludes, So shall we ever be with the Lord. We'll never be separated from Him again. The devil will have no more power. He's not going to be where we're going. You see, he will be in hell. Revelation 19 and 20 describes that. And so all those who choose to be unfaithful, they're going to be where he is. And they'll be suffering the punishment that he receives. And they'll be suffering that terrible fate that will be his. But to those who are the faithful, we're going to rise to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with him. And verse 18 then puts it like this, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I believe it's fair to say you and I can put up with almost anything for a little while. As long as we know that's what's going to soon happen. Whatever difficulties or pain we may experience here, they're going to give way at some moment to the sweetest event in all of history. That event when the Master is going to return and we with a smile on our face. We may long since have been dead, but our body will come out of that grave and we'll get to be with the Lord. Don't you know those saints felt that way in Revelation 6? They'd been beheaded for the cause of Christ. Their head stricken from their body. And yet they reigned beneath the characteristics with Him. And in Revelation 20, they reigned with Jesus. All of that persecution that they had faced... All of those difficulties and challenges that had been theirs, it was all washed away in the history of that moment. And they were now with Jesus. I hope that's going to be our lot too. That's what we'd better be living for. That's what we'd better be aiming for. Because Paul again here pointed out, there's only two categories. Those who are the faithful have heaven to look forward to. But those that are the unfaithful are the very ones that he would address two chapters forward. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9, Paul to that same church would say, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. I don't want to be in that number. Those who are going to feel the full nature of God's wrath for all eternity. Today, if there's anyone in this audience who by the choice of your life, you know that all isn't well with your soul. The Bible is easy to understand when it comes to that. If you've never become a Christian, why don't you do that today? Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess the greatness of His name, and make a commitment upon baptism to live with Him faithfully forever. He'll be there to encourage and assist and help. Doesn't mean we won't stumble. It doesn't mean we won't fall. But we've got to get up and live that Christian life in faith again. If you have become a faithful Christian, but at this moment you know, and maybe others do too, that you are not right with God. Again, it's not a hidden thing. The Bible is very clear, and 
All we have to do is look into the perfect law of liberty. And if I am mistaken, if I've got my life misdirected, it's my decision to do something about it. God doesn't force me to stay lost. He wants me to be saved. And He wants all of us to be. If you need prayers for forgiveness, God is the one who wants to forgive you. And He has taught that as the Christian family here at Pippin, we'd be delighted to pray to Him on your behalf. And we are promised, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Why? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. No one would look with insult. When you come down that aisle, Jesus will wrap His arms of love and comfort around you. And He wants to do it, but He won't force you. Today, if we could be of any assistance, any help in any of these ways, the second coming of the Lord is a certainty. May we strive to be ready. And if we could help you do that now, let's do it while together we stand and while we sing.